Hello and welcome to the Making Theatre podcast. My name is Bruno Poet. And my name is James Farncombe and we are freelance lighting designers. This time, we're talking to lighting designer and founder of stage site, Prema Meta. Prema has designed the lighting for over 200 productions and works throughout the UK. Recent work includes productions at the Royal Court, Sheffield Theatres, Shakespeare's Globe, Storyhouse and The Young Vic. She has also designed for the English Theatre in Frankfurt, Madame Tussauds and the O2 Arena. She would have been lighting The Winter's Tale at the RSC, but because of the pandemic, she's talking to us instead. Welcome, Prema. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. It's brilliant to have you here. Thank you for coming. Lovely to take the time out to do something like this, actually. Oh, good. You say that now. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're trying to remember what theatre is. <laughs> Could you start by describing what a lighting designer does? Golly, that should be the easiest question, shouldn't it, in the world? Um, what does a lighting designer do? At a very basic level, provide illumination to the to the stage, make sure that the performers are visible. Um, but I like to think we do a little bit more than that and that we support the storytelling, we set the atmosphere, we help create locations uh, and absolutely play our part in taking the audience into a different world. And you've done over 200 shows or so now, I think. Um, do you still enjoy it? What is it you love about being a lighting designer? Do you know what? I think, Bruno, it's it's much more about the collaboration. I know there are some people out there who just get really excited by kit and uh, swatch books. And I, you know, I think I was really excited in my early years at swatch books and choice of fixtures etc but for me now it's much more about who do you get to work with what's the piece that you're telling is it something that's going to challenge you and push you either as an artist or as a person and so I think for me it's the the thing I like the most is the collaboration yeah I think I agree and the collaboration the storytelling and the being with a bunch of people in a room solving problems and trying to um, make something special for an audience it's yeah it's a joy yeah. Very much so. So how did it all begin for you? Where did you grow up and when were you first exposed to theatre? So I, w- I think I was really late to theatre. I think I went to the theatre for the first time when I was about 16 and it was on a school trip to see Blood Brothers. So, oh, you know, wow. a really great piece to go and watch. You know, I saw Blood Brothers on a school trip as well. I think that was one of the first times I went to see a musical. If ever you're going to go and see theatre for the first time, I think Blood Brothers was absolutely the right fit. <laughs> Delivers everything, yeah. It did, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I was I was born in Orpington in Kent. And then I think we all moved to London when I was about six years old. I think we all know a mutual colleague who currently lives in, in Orpington and is very... Um, very quick to correct this, but at the time it was it was quite a racist place and we literally had to just pack up and go. My parents needed a safe place for their children to grow up. Uh, so yes, of course, I'm, I'm hopeful that times have changed, but mm. that was the reason that we moved to London. We thought it'd be uh, a bit more forward in terms of mm. thinking and acceptance of um, a wider society. Okay. And was it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's difficult to remember, like, you know, I don't remember that experience, thankfully, because I was obviously quite young. But certainly, yeah, my parents were very pleased that they made the choice to move and they had other members of the family in London. So, you know, their brothers, sisters, my uncle's aunts. So perhaps a bit more of a support network. Whereas when we were in Orpington, it was sort of us by ourselves in in a gorgeous house, big garden, you know, really wonderful 
Uh, used to go to like the farm and pick strawberries, really lovely memories. And yet there's the realisation that they had to make a choice to leave. Going into London when you were six, uh, how did you get from there to studying at Guildhall? Um, mm. Where did you, you saw Blood Brothers, you said, and what brought along an interest in, in theatre and in fact um, choosing to go and study theatre with the thought of it being a career? Yeah, what a journey, Bruno. I think um, I remember seeing Blood Brothers and not quite knowing the answers, but really knowing very clearly that there was a lot more that was going on somewhere in this space because there was definitely a bigger machine than what I saw on stage. Yeah. Mm. Now, I don't know exactly, um, you know, at that age, I didn't know what what that meant, what roles existed, but it was clear. Everything was so fluid and smooth. There was movement. Um, so I think I literally just left that show and just started thinking a lot about the show that I'd seen. Um, I spoke to my drama school teacher. I spoke to, well, I went on to do A-level theatre studies and of course, you know, with those sort of subjects, the majority of the people studying those subjects decide to pick acting as individual skill. Um, yeah. And I just knew instinctively that that, that wasn't my forte. So um, I started just exploring what else could I do in terms of an individual skill. It, it's kind of, looking back, it's really odd that, you know, at the age of 18, studying A-level theatre studies, I said to my tutor, I'd quite like to pick lighting as my individual skill. Right. And did, but I guess you must have had some exposure to lighting or done some lighting at school as part of that drama studies course. Did that trigger interest? Did you have a very inspiring teacher? Yeah, exactly that. I mean, I, I think we had, uh, well, a couple of weeks learning about lighting, all of us together. That wasn't quite enough to, well, it's never going to be quite enough to tell you everything, but it was enough to create a bit of a spark within me and be intrigued to find out more. Being the only person who wanted to choose lighting, it felt quite clear that um, I would need to light everybody's individual pieces. And yeah, absolutely, had a really brilliant A-level theatre tutor, David Kinder, who found money and negotiated with the school to hire out a couple of park hands and a profile and you know, buy a gobo, get a couple mm. of sheets of gel in. Um, and he absolutely let me have that space to experiment. And um, he was the first to be up a ladder to focus the lights and and sort of try and inquire what I wanted to create. So, yeah, full of support. It's so often the way, isn't it, that you have one individual inspirational teacher that will set you on your way. And if you're lucky enough to be in that person's class, <laughs> it seems to me that that's kind of the way that it works for a lot of people. I wonder if they know the impact they have. No, they probably don't. Yeah. That's the crazy thing. And I wonder how many people go back and let them know. I ended up doing A Winter's Tale for Theatre Studies and it felt really fitting this year when I was meant to be at the RSC lighting the winter's tale. So I actually tried to reach out and connect with my tutor. But it was a bit difficult, actually. The, the college told me that he'd left and they didn't have any details for him. And I started thinking, am I going to have to do that awful social media thing and just put a call out, finding finding Mr. Kinder? Um, but yeah, I really, it just felt really, it felt like I came full circle. Did you find him? I haven't yet. But, you know, we were forced to go into lockdown when we were, I think, three or four days before focusing. So I think there's still time to find him. You never know. He might hear this. Exactly <laughs> that. Exactly that. So you knew that lighting was your interest even before you went to Guildhall, in fact. that's So that's an incredible advantage, isn't it, to go into a place like Guildhall, knowing that that's your area of interest? 
I think the answer to that is yes and no. So when I went to Guildhall, suddenly there was there were a lot more options available to me. I didn't know about stage management. I didn't know about props. So it felt like I was going back to square one in a good way because Guildhall at that time was really brilliantly diverse in terms of what they made you study. The actual degree was called Stage Management Technical Theatre. So you really got, you got a taste. The first year was a taste in every department. So in some ways, I sort of, I left A-levels thinking, oh, lighting's really exciting. And then I went to Guildhall and everything was exciting. <laughs> right. Um, and I still remember Nick Peel, uh, my old lighting tutor, said to me, less of the old, I'm sure he'll say, <laughs> <laughs> said to me, um, Premo, if only you would have sort of clocked on to the fact that you wanted to pursue lighting in your first or second year. Because it was actually the third year where I sort of, again, had a bit of an experience in every department and then caught the bug again about research and life. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting because uh, I think uh, that it's very important to have experienced other aspects of performance for, for, for everybody. I mean, I always say, say Howard Davis, for example, claimed to have operated flies and even lit a couple of shows. Rufus Norris did some follow spot. Mm. I was a production manager for a while. I believe Bruno worked on a fly floor. I did for several panties. Yeah, yeah. It strikes me that it's important to have a kind of, it, for all practitioners, it's it's useful rather. It's not essential, but it's useful to have a a broad experience of theatre, which sounds like you got at Guildhall. Have, did you, did when you left, did you carry on? Did Have you done other things other than lighting? I've done other things outside of the sector, but it was all about pursuing a career in lighting design. I didn't even go down the route of being a techie and working my way around to being a lighting designer. It was just about lighting design so it was all about going straight into fringe venues into pub theatres as a lighting designer um but I definitely agree with you I think you know if you kind of have an understanding of all the other roles that's only going to be a good thing um and certainly like my experiences at Guildhall and being being DSM for Janet Sisman was just you know all of those experiences you just think I'm really really pleased that I sort of got to understand theatre from all angles. Yeah, it really helps conversation and, and the collaboration. Yeah, yeah. Once you left Guildhall, you started out lighting fringe shows. Did you have any role models or mentors who sort of helped you early on in your career? How did you get started? I think, do you know, I think I had like a really informal mentor. I'm going to embarrass someone now by mentioning him, but I did tell him years ago, so it's not going to be news. He might have just forgotten. I had real difficulties with... Being 18, going out into the real world and having the confidence to call a focus session because I hadn't quite found my confidence, certainly wasn't a confident lighting designer, an excited one perhaps, but not necessarily a confident one. Yeah. But to carry out the role, I think I felt um, it's really interesting because I, I have always felt quite petite and, and that's not necessarily true of my physique I mean you know I'm probably somewhere in the middle but I'm not sure if if others would regard me as um petite but I felt it so mm-hmm. the thought of calling out a focus session and my voice being loud enough to project and for the people at the tourley to hear and um all of that felt really really difficult for me so I don't know if it was a mentor but I would certainly I would <laughs> I think you might kill me I had to put myself in 
in Neil Austin's shoes and I had to pretend to be Neil to have that whole process yeah. and um and it worked my my shoulders became broader my voice became clearer <laughs> and louder just this yeah just an, a sort of persona and I thought I can't quite deliver this as premier for whatever complex reason but if I put my Neil Austin hat on I can probably get through this and I did and then and then I think that the, the beauty is that you do it so many times and then you end up finding your own way. And and then yeah. I've found a premise and that just works really well for me. Yeah, I used to be terrified of getting in on those Monday mornings to focus a rig. And of course, we gradually get used to it. But Because you'd have to speak at volume. Yeah. And, and if you were going to stand on a stage and basically shout out all the instructions, you wanted to sound like you knew what you were talking about. Because if you didn't, everybody could hear that you were floundering. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was a horrible feeling. I remember that as a horrible feeling and a real sense that that was the moment that you were effectively performing, actually, that you're literally in the spotlight, that you were um, in charge of a whole room. Yeah. I mean, isn't that quite something, James? That's exactly what it is, that you're on stage and you are the one that everyone's eyes is on. You know, that's quite a lot mm. of pressure and it's a very public skill, isn't it? Mm. You're calling out instructions for something very visible which anybody could have a comment on and always that I think it's going to do that because in my head it's going to do that but let's see really publicly let's see if it's just as I imagined I think that's the one thing about lighting that people probably don't give enough dare I say respect to that it's a really Mm. public form of art yeah, it can be a very public humiliation. <laughs> it is, because we do try all our ideas out for the first time in front of a lot of other people. We don't get to do a sketch on a, um, on a notepad yeah. or build a model or be in a quiet rehearsal room and work out some lines. We are in the theatre, on the stage, um, yeah. working with equipment in front of a, a lot of people. Mm. Going back to fringe shows, um, it's tough like, uh, being... A lifestyler on the fringe um you don't really get paid which if you get paid either nothing or very very little so how did you make ends meet how did you survive yeah that's um I mean you're so right my first show was a profit share production and I remember the producer feeling quite confident and quite comfortable about sending me a little note in the post um saying thank you uh, with a cheque of £15, like £15 for two weeks. That didn't even yeah. cover travel. But she even wrote a little note to say, thanks for all your work. Here's the profit share results, enough to buy yourself a magazine and some chocolates. And I just thought, golly, like that's... What am I doing? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, all, all those um, questions about, are you doing the right thing? Is it the right career? Um, with a £15 cheque. So what I did was I... Um, I just looked for work in other sectors and I just knew that I would need to financially support myself and lighting would be something that I would always want to pursue and I would keep my fingers crossed that it would work out but Mm. it was certainly not going to be you know the 15 pound check was not going to pay for anything so I needed to be quite sensible about chasing an ambition and at the same time pursuing something else that would kind of make ends meet Mm. yeah yeah because I've heard of I've heard you talk about working at Saracen's Rugby Club is that right Mm -hmm. so how did that come about and what did you do so as part of my you know I put my sensible hat on and I thought I've got to get work in another sector and actually I started out really locally I I worked for a local authority so local government 
there was sort of like a system, an office that you would apply to. And and I was a bit bullshit with my ask. I knew I didn't want to leave Lighton. So I said, I can only do one day a week and it's got to be admin. I was just thinking about my skill set. So I got offered a one day a week job um, for local government. That sort of worked quite well because then I could, you know, do anything around it. I'm not saying financially that one day a week helped incredibly, but it was a good start, took off the pressure. And from that, just my experience in local government, it just grew. I I started off as one day a week and then I think I stepped up to two or three. I worked my way through a couple of departments. It's just really interesting, I think, how how another sector can kind of see um, somebody progress or give them space to grow. So I think I ended up in adult social care, which was, you know, a whole new topic. And from that, it felt fitting for other people to sort of suggest that I go into prevention and well-being. So suddenly I'm working, setting up a whole new department on prevention and well-being. And, you know, all of that happened over the course of three years. So it's not something that happened overnight. But I ended up working with some consultants who came in and they were asked to shape up the system. They all said, why don't you go off and get a project management qualification when I did this intensive week? And actually, I remember it being a joy to go back and learn about something I just didn't know about. Um, and formalise the work that I had been doing. We had Saracens come into our local authority keen to kind of develop work with us. So they came to know me. And then after a while, I think I had to sort of make a decision and I thought it's time to leave local government. And I'd barely left and Saracens just picked up the phone. And I think because there was a relationship that already existed... And it was the year of the England World Cup. So they were, we've got a massive project that we're running in between, I think it was Saracens Rugby Club, Bath Rugby um, and the O2. So they just needed somebody to deliver. And I think they kind of had that experience of working with me. Did you at that point think maybe that you weren't going to pursue this yeah, as a career and, and give up on lighting? Or was lighting always in your mind? Was it always a means to an end to support yourself while you continued lighting or had you actually stopped lighting shows while this was happening I always continued perhaps I did fewer lighting shows I can't remember numbers but I would definitely say I never gave up I was really clear even with being at Sarri's I was really well supported so I would I would have a production meeting at six o'clock and I would say to my boss I've got a clock off at four because I've got to get to the production meeting looking back you know some of the memories I used to have like a change of clothes in my car (laughs) You'd turn up at Surrey's in a dress and heels and then you'd get into your car and change into your jeans and not heels um, uh-huh. and then go into a production meeting. But what I always did very deliberately, and this is where all of my secrets are coming out, I always made sure that when I was working either for local government or Saracens, they all knew about my ambition and you know my desire to really build a career in theatre. Right. But I never told anyone in theatre yeah, something else. Yeah, exactly that. And I would come home and I would make up the hours for Sarries because I would basically just be working from home and catch up on emails. Yeah. Yeah. And there was this great level of mutual trust and it stuff got done. So no one missed out on, you know, no one lost out even. How did you manage then to move to earning a living from lighting shows full time? Yeah, huge question. Um, I have to be honest, I think it took me eight years So the first eight years of my career, there was no way that I had enough work, no way I could earn enough money from theatre. And then suddenly it felt like it all came together. And I guess that's just the nature of our industry. 
um, there was a, a really interesting period of working with an artistic director and somehow that would lead to another production with another artistic director and I kind of got this vibe that they, they all must speak to each other there must be some sort of weak emotion <laughs> but once literally once I started working with one artistic director that kind of set things up for me in a really positive way you find yourself working for artistic directors across the country which of course you know I'm, I'm aware of the privilege of being in that position now you're lighting shows all over the UK, Sheffield, Leeds, Manchester, York, Leicester, London, Stratford-upon-Avon. Mm. Have I missed any? <laughs> and you're lighting theatre, musicals and dance. Uh, where do you feel most at home? Um, I would say drama is where I feel most at home. Maybe that's new writing, maybe that's a classic. So I feel most at home with drama, but I think I bring loads of sort of techniques so, for example, my experience of lighting in dance, it just means that when I light for drama, I come in at all angles. I think about sculpting the space. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so how do you begin? We ask this question a lot, but how do you approach the blank page or rather, I guess these days, the empty CAD document? Where do the ideas come from? I I remember um, being at first day of rehearsals. I think it was at the Royal Court. And I said really confidently, Gosh, it is, it's completely a blank page, isn't it? No one really knows what we're going to create. And especially at the Royal Court, when it's new writing, you can't even hope that you might have come across that production before. Yeah. But I think a lot of it is actually around, I've got really comfortable at knowing that it's a blank page and that that comes with a, it comes with an equal measure of excitement and an equal measure of utter nervousness. What is this going to be? For me, understanding that, that emotion, that mix of nervousness and excitement is the right way to begin. And then I know it sounds cliche, but I think a lot of it is about, it's about collaboration. You know, my relationships with the set designers are always really collaborative. Mm. They're key collaborators. I mean, I would say sometimes more so than the director, I get more information from a set designer or just even seeing their model. I think James and I probably agree that we sort of need something to hang the ideas on. And so the physical environment the show is going to happen in makes a huge difference to how you approach everything, really, once you know what space you're going to be in. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. My, my lighting is always a response to the physical space yeah. and, and the and the script, the libretto is secondary to that. And a lot of it, again, you know, it's probably not the answer you want to hear, but it, it's instinctive, isn't it? Mm. You sort of, yeah. You respond to a piece or you respond to the set um, and it's... If anyone said break down that thought process, I mean, that would be really interesting to do because I know I've got to that place. I couldn't always tell you how. <laughs> no, I think I'd agree. I think a lot of it is instinctive and it's a gut reaction. Of course, it's and it's about taste and it's about, there's no not really a right or wrong answer, is there? There's just what you feel is the most appropriate answer for the situation in front of you. But talking about lighting the abstract, those sort of conversations you have with, with directors or, or designers, it's quite hard. It's hard to describe light, I think, in words. Are there tricks or techniques that you use? I've always felt that it's our job as a as a lighting designer to find the best way of communicating with the director. Mm. So some directors are obviously more visual than others, and I think some are better at talking about lighting than others. Um, equally, some like to get really heavily involved, and others just want you to just get on and do it. Yeah. And I think it's what's really interesting is when you're working with someone for the first time, 
you've actually got to gauge that correctly quite quickly early on. Mm. That's probably over the course of two conversations and you you know you don't know them, you've not worked with them before. I don't believe in asking other people because I think everybody will have a different experience. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then you just go, right, this is my job and this is the level of support that they need. So I have spent some time talking to this director and I'm really confident that they're very clear in what they're asking me to do and I'm going to take their tech know-how and use it. Or they're not very confident about talking about lights or worse still, they think they're really confident about talking about lights, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure. <laughs> um, and I think all of it just has to be a really comfortable relationship where they can turn around and go, yeah, not quite Premier. And that's that's absolutely fine to say. Let me go back and I often pull out images. So let me go out and pull out some more images and come back. Yeah. Um, and then you just develop that dialogue, I think. And of course, the second time is always easier because there's that trust that's been built. Um, you know, you've been fortunate enough to be called back so you might have done something right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Being called back is confirmation that you're on the right tracks. So there's a sort of straight away that you, you can operate with a little more confidence. But it sounds like you you take responsibility for that relationship in the first place and that you go after the information. You don't expect it to be brought to you. Yeah, I would I would agree with that, James. I think yes. And actually I there's there's a part of lighting design that we don't talk about and that's often about um especially when you're working with artistic directors. I mean, their heads must be full. You know, I've worked with directors who are in tech and over a lunch break go into a HR meeting and come mm. back into tech and they're like, Prema, where were we? And you've got to go back a little bit to go forwards. That responsibility is ours. It's it's our responsibility to make sure that we deliver the best we can. And that may mean just being really aware of their circumstances and their workload and just navigating that relationship and making sure you get what you need. So, you know, at times I will bypass an artistic director and go straight to their PA and be like, I need to get my lighting plan in by this date. And at the moment it is a blank page. So I need you to carve me out some time. And actually most PAs are great at doing that, aren't they? They're just really supportive. It's a very good tip. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I've actually done that. Tell me, going back a bit, pre-tech, do you find it useful to spend a lot of time in rehearsals? Yes, when they're up on their feet. Um, I have to be honest, yeah. you know, when I've, well, you guys know what it's like when you're juggling X amount of shows and you go into rehearsals and they're all sat there doing character work, that's probably not the <laughs> best use of my time. Yeah. Um, but absolutely, when they're up on their feet, um, of course, when they're blocking, you know, obviously we're there for run-throughs, but run-throughs are exactly that, aren't they? They just, they you if you're not familiar with bits and pieces, it runs away with you and you're a bit like, whoa. So I think yeah, going into rehearsals is always great when they're up on their feet. So what you're looking for is is bodies in space, essentially, at that stage. Exactly, James. I think, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, and then so in rehearsals, who do you talk to? Is it just a relationship with the director or, or, are there, or do you talk to other people? Do you get to know the cast, for example? I think I sort of go in do my job get out so of course you know there's like polite hellos to the cast and um you'll know their names but I don't think we spend enough time especially in rehearsals during that period to really sit down and get to know each other I think I've always found that actually it's tech that you get to know the actors having said that quite often you know you're hidden behind your production desk and you sort of hope that those who want to come over to you and have a little chat but yeah, I would say I go into rehearsals, um, obviously, you know, sit as closely as I can to the director, 
but equally the DSM, you know, just kind of get to know them better because that relationship, um, I don't think that relationship between a DSM and a lighting designer gets talked about enough. And yet that's a massive part of the collaboration. Oh God, I agree. A, a good DSM totally. is invaluable. It's show changing for me. It's make or break, isn't it? I think, I, I mean, yeah. Yeah. It was a couple of years ago, I went from one show to another very quickly. Uh, and the the first show was at Scottish Opera with an amazing DSM. I'm not going to say where the second show was because I don't want anybody to feel bad, but it was the, the complete opposite, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and it, that was a real illustration of just how important it was, how important it is, sorry, to have a, a, D, a good DSM. Yeah. yeah, it makes such a difference. Just to, and, and the understanding of the rhythm of the show and what you're trying to achieve with the lighting and how the key, where the key point should be and the information they can pass on from things they glean in the rehearsal room that they pass on to you, it's, it's just invaluable. Yeah. yeah. So the tech, which is um, our favourite bit, um, I don't know if it's yours, but it's yeah. also the bit when we're under the most pressure. Um, and as we spoke about earlier in focusing, it's the, it's the time when you're trying out ideas very, very publicly. Yes. What do you do to make sure you're ready for the tech? I guess, of course, you know, I, I, I come in and I've seen the run through. I've got a really, really scribbled um script which is really informative good luck to anyone who's trying to decode that but it's great for me um <laughs> yeah. and I always go in with some form of cue sheet um and I will share that with my DSM in advance yeah obviously you know be like subject to change and please just pencil it in but I think certainly if you if you have a draft cue sheet and you've got some stuff in the book then at least you're not having to almost spend time going through each cue and you know cues in the book and all that I think um so I I in yeah I hope I'm doing all the right things I, I definitely do those things and if there's an element of prep that I'm missing out on this is the moment for you guys to share <laughs> I think everyone's a bit different how they work I mean I think I, I always I'm very similar I always make sure that the DSM does have um a cue list and cues in the book and I normally yeah. put blank cues in the lighting desk with labels as well so I can sort of fill them in as we go because I just use that as a key sheet. But in terms of your your imagination of what the show is going to look like, do you sort of go into a tech with an image in your head of where you think each scene will be? I mean, how do you sort of build the pictures on stage? I absolutely know in my head what I want each scene to look like. And the most exciting part for me is actually that end of rehearsal period that bit where you just can't quite sleep and you're going into tech because you're really excited because you've got these visuals that are alive in your head and you just can't wait to get into that space and transfer the imagery from your head into that space. Um, so I would say I have a really clear idea. I wouldn't I wouldn't be overly confident and say it always works, but yeah, I would... Of course, sometimes it, it, it doesn't work. So are you good at sort of thinking your feet to adapt to things that when that don't quite turn out as you expected yeah and I think I think that comes Bruno with obviously with experience because we've probably or I've probably been in a situation where uh, things haven't gone according to plan and I've had to learn very quickly so I don't think for me the confidence doesn't come from knowing that I've absolutely nailed light and, and I've got this but it comes from knowing that I will probably be able to do exactly that be able to get myself out of trouble get this out of trouble really quickly um and make make good judgments to fix things you've also got to be quite careful about what you ask your team to do so you're not going to be very popular if you end up wanting to change the color in every fixture and you know the focus of every light so you've got to just go right 
that certain element's not quite working. This is how we're going to solve it. Um, and equally, what I found over the years is sometimes I won't know the answer as quickly as I want to, but I will have the confidence to say to a director, because it's true, that I just need to sleep on it. I know that the answer will be with me tomorrow morning. And that's always the case. I need to just rest my brain. Yeah. God, those are those are all things that I, I wish someone had told me much earlier on in my career before I discovered it myself. It's okay to um, to have to work things out and to take your time over it. It's true. Uh, also, just trusting that there's a team working on it as well. I always think of the, you know, the young director who sits through the first disastrous preview and then keeps everybody there till gone midnight telling them all of the notes when actually you could just say, 90% of this stuff, it's just going to fix itself after a good night's sleep. Yeah. Everybody saw the same show and they're, you know, they know what needs to be done. So it's just trusting that things will come good in time is, is a really big part of what we do, I think. Yeah. But listen, um, technology uh, it plays a massive part in what we do now. Uh, and obviously there's been some sea changes in the equipment that we use and the, and the software that we use and the control systems and all those things over the last well, few years, really. Do you feel excited by the ever-changing technology or, or are you daunted by the need to keep up? I think there's a massive issue around um, the time that we need to carve out to keep up with the latest technology. I think it's exciting. I'm always intrigued by it. How do you keep on top with the latest thing that's been released when you're running up and down the country? I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure I do that as well as perhaps others would. Uh, I mean, I, I'd be the first to admit I'd probably upset a few people, but I don't quite find time to be able to make um, make a trip to Plaza and the ABTT. And, you know, for X number of years, it's just never been the case that I've been able to attend. Um mm. But it filters, I think I'm the same, but it yeah. does sort of filter down to us, doesn't it? Because places, theatres like the RSC or the National or any number of places, really, they, they'll buy in a stock of 10 um, lusters. Mm. So you get to play with it. And eventually, though, like like you, I think I always feel like I'm coming to the party late. Yeah. Um, but but that new technology is is there and available now in many places. Do you have a sense that, that it's changed your approach to design over time? Has it led to better lighting? You know, there's that element of when you're designing, do you put up every bit of kit up into the grid because you know that you'll most likely use it? And I've never been one of those people. I always design with purpose. I'm quite economical in terms of my design. Every light serves a purpose. So mm. I don't know if that's answered your question, James. I think the point that I'm trying to make is I wouldn't use kit just for sake of using kit I mean of course sometimes it's exciting and if they've got stuff on their tech spec and it's quite nice to try stuff out um mm. but I would never be like oh they've got loads of this stuff let's just use it all I would I would sort of do my research as to what what can it offer what can it bring does it serve a purpose yeah. and if it does then yeah I'd quite like to stick it in the rig but um I never feel obliged to use all of the kit to I don't know fill up fill up space on the paper that's just not me that's probably a good thing I think that's a very good thing chief electricians all over the country are breathing a sigh of relief as we speak <laughs> I think I was thinking probably more I, I suppose speaking from my own experience the the led color mixing yeah. thing that you get from a luster means that I don't really choose gel anymore uh, that's much more a live response to 
things that happen on stage costume wise or you know mood wise and if it's not quite right you can just adjust it ever so slightly yeah. and you can do it at the touch of a button now rather than having to get the ladders out and change the gel yeah absolutely i mean the lusters are an absolute blessing aren't they but i think i think when i work across the country you're going to get some organizations that have the latest kit or bits of the latest kit and some that won't and and i think that's mm. quite nice because it just keeps it makes sure that you've got all the skill sets to deliver what you need to deliver with the kit that's available or with the budget that you're entitled to. When um, when you have huge budgets and the opportunity to do things like have 100 moving lights in a rig or something, I think there is a danger that it can lead to slightly lazy design because you kind of know you've got something to get you out of trouble in all situations. And I think I found myself guilty of this, that I sort of go, well, I'll just stick a bunch of lights there and it'll be fine and we'll work it out later on rather than actually going through the show and working out what each moment really needs lighting wise. So I think sometimes the restrictions are really helpful and I think they keep your design designer's brain going. Technology is getting ever, ever more complicated and we've now got ways of simulating you know, lighting designs on computers. I've talked with people about the idea of you could maybe I could sit in Cornwall and watch rehearsal and actually virtually light over the rehearsal f- from afar. Are you sort of excited by those sort of possibilities, sort of virtual reality and and that kind of future in lighting? Yeah, I think so. I think we're all being pushed to work in ways that are not our traditional ways, if you like. That gives us great scope to kind of experiment with the new or certainly push boundaries in all sorts of ways and and potentially be more creative. Um, I've recently been brought on board as a lighting designer, but for a piece of work around virtual reality so I'm having to learn about a whole new world they sent around a courier yesterday with with a headset I mean obviously I've I've worn those headsets before but just understanding what it is that they're looking to create and the process and again another way of collaborating with people so I think it's fascinating I think yeah I think my money is going to be around um, virtual reality really stepping up its game and it'd be interesting to see how theatre work with that and whether we embrace it but in huge contrast to all this um i know you've worked quite a lot at the globe in the sam wanamaker playhouse um was it richard ii swive and bartholomew fair yes yes yeah um and am i right in thinking they were all lit using only candles i think bartholomew fair actually um had a different brief they allowed us to use lighting in what we would conceive a more you know traditional way but uh-huh. Um, Swive and Richard II, absolutely, the brief was candlelight um, only. So I'm fascinated, and I wish I'd seen one of these, but how was it? How how did you approach that as a lighting designer? I, I honestly, I remember getting AV checked for this and sweating. You know, the, the fact that they <laughs> actually said, you're a lighting designer, would you like to come and work with candles? You know, again, another example of it being a really exciting opportunity but I had to read that email three times before I even contemplated replying. Um, <laughs> because you just sort of go, I'm a lighting designer. I, I Actually, I don't think I know enough about candles. Yeah. But you know what? They're a great team down there. Cleo is basically like queen of, queen of candles down there. And she was absolutely supportive in understanding that, you know, I was really new to it. I, this was a whole new medium. Mm. I didn't pretend to know any of the answers but eventually I convinced myself that I was up for the challenge they gave me this wonderful title candle consultant which is the snazziest title I've ever had 
Um, candle consultant, yeah, amazing. But it kept me up because I was like, I'm not a candle consultant, I'm a lighting designer. Um, I, th- <sighs> I think my process there was, you know, absolutely learning everything I could. But did you have cues? Could you do lighting cues or candle cues? We don't have candle cues. I have to be honest and say we were allowed to use... <laughs> We were, oh God, I'm going to get told off by the globe. You're giving away secrets now. <laughs> There's a little part of the lighting, not directly in the space, around the space, <gasps> that if you use it really gently, really subtly, you can bounce light off. And I think that's all I can say. And therefore, for that particular element, you needed you needed like a lighting desk and you needed a cue stack. I mean, you'd probably only get up to five lighting cues you plan out what what candles you want to use and where and who brings them on and when do they snuff them and all of those, you know, the transitions. And you literally have to hope that the that the air ventilation um, swooshes in the right direction, <laughs> that, um, you know, the actresses don't deliver their lines and accidentally snuff out the one candle that's lit on stage in that moment. A lot of it... Right. The fingers crossed but and I, I say that and I'm conscious that I'm taking away the beauty of it but it's really well thought through and yet you have to go in knowing there's a little bit of luck involved and so the, and so the cast are kind of your lighting crew they're the ones who are actually operating and moving the lights around yeah absolutely and and you know I think that is actually a real moment where you do work quite closely with the with the cast I remember on Swive there was an actor who said to me we wanted to create, you know, as a single source of light, one single candle. He was great. He was like, how close do I hold this candle to my face? What hand do you want me to hold it in? Where do you want my shadow to cast? How close should I be to my shadow? And it was just those tiny moments um, are really brilliantly collaborative and quite rare to work with actors in that way. Yeah. Is it true as well that the origin of the ruff, you know, the kind of large ruff they used to wear in Tudor times, that's to reflect light up onto the face, yeah, isn't it? exactly that. Yes, absolutely. Again, a blessing. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. Isn't yeah. that amazing that that was all about illuminating the face? Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. All this is quite a contrast from fame, isn't it? Like which, which you've also done. It's one of the greatest privileges of being a lighting designer is the variety of shows we get to do. But that is really quite something, the candle consultancy. Yeah. Yeah. How lovely. Amazing. Yeah. So we could happily talk for hours about lighting. Um, we haven't even started discussing our favourite shades of blue or sharing stories of burning fingers on red hot gobos. But we'd also really like to talk to you about your work with Stage Sight. Oh. You founded Stage Sight. Can you tell us what it is and why you started it? So Stage Sight is um, it's a platform effectively for shared learning. Uh, so what that means is we ask organisations to become members of Stage Sight and to become a member, that organisation would actively commit to making some form of change within the offstage workforce to kind of improve the sector, if you like. But more specifically, we're talking about the lack of diversity in the offstage workforce I think it's come from, well, it's obviously come from my own experiences. It's come from traveling up and down the country, being aware of my background, being aware that nobody quite looked like me. Was this an issue across the country? Yes. And what did we need to do? What areas did we need to shake up? So for me, it was very clear that we lacked diversity in terms of class, in terms, I mean, I'm from a working class background, um, in terms of ethnicity. 
and uh, disability. You know, it was so clear to me. I remember we were starting to model stage site and we talked a lot about class and ethnicity uh, and my experiences. And then I remember saying, if we don't include disability now, we're going to be talking about disability in five years time and, and we can't let that happen. So really, it's there to solve a problem because I think our sector has a massive issue in terms of um, who made up the workforce and was it a certain you know, type of person or would you be more likely to succeed if you came from a certain background? Um, so, yes, a stage site basically makes people commit to making change. It's more than talking about it. In fact, we do very little talking. We do a lot more of um, sign up, tell us what you're pledging to, and we're going to check in and see how you're getting on. And if you're feeling uninspired, come and find out through stage site what the other 70, 80 organisations are doing um, and find a bit of inspiration. Me, I'm someone who's used to hearing a lot of idealistic talk. You know, they hear a lot of good intentions. But one of the things I noticed looking at the website is how much concrete procedure has been put in place mm. in a huge number of theatres. I mean, there's a list on that website of virtually every theatre company that I could think of anyway. For example, I'm just going to pick one at random. There's the interview guidelines at the Unicorn Theatre yeah. and what they put in place to to mitigate against unconscious bias in the interview process. Yeah. That seems to me to be a very simple, very effective action. Yeah. I thought the biggest challenge would be that people wouldn't want to make change. And the more I worked on stage site, I realised it wasn't a lack of willingness. It was either a lack of time or resource or expertise or inspiration. But I think what people find when they join stage site is actually it's, it's quite manageable. There's really mm. simple actions that you could put in place within your organisation that would make a massive change, you just haven't done it yet. Um, or, you know, to, to the credit of a lot of the organisation members, they are already doing it and they haven't previously shared with the, you know, with the wider sector that this is what they're doing and this has worked really well. We had these um, stage site forums and I would have to introduce every forum and, you know, that sort of public speaking role is something that I, I try to avoid for so many years of my life and then got pushed into it. But a lot of the times I start these forums because I say it's about leaving with a bit more knowledge, leaving with inspiration, but always come with the generosity of sharing honestly. Um, and I think that can only be a good thing. I've not joined yet. What could I contribute? James, you could contribute a huge amount. So I've spoken about the organisation members. They would join up and they would commit to making a change within recruitment, reaching out and creating a new pathway. So those are our three strands. And so organisations have to commit to making a practical change in at least one of those three strands. As an individual, James, you would join, and I say individual because you're a freelancer as opposed to working for an organisation full time. So you would join either, well, I mean, people join as individual members because they're either from those backgrounds that we represent and they kind of want, somebody said to me recently, we want somebody to kind of rock the boat and we're scared because we're quite young. And I was like, don't worry, stage site can do that. We will rock that boat. But equally, there's people, um, you know, Bruno, Paulie Constable, uh, are individual members because they believe in the values of what stage sites working towards and that they would 
either offer mentorship to somebody else who's an individual member at a different stage of their career, or they would go about doing their job and, you know, working for organisations and telling organisations that you could join stage site or even just being an eye and observing who you're working with and talking to producers about could this be different so I think it's just even a voice to support the cause is incredible would be amazing yeah and the pandemic has been a difficult and scary time for most in our industry but it's also been a time for reflection and conversation has that led to a greater interest in stage side I, I think um at the beginning of the pandemic we found a lot of individual members um keen to join so we have quadrupled our membership in terms of individuals you know we've all been aware that there were existing inequalities so they've joined because they're conscious that actually the pandemic will only make this worse and they want to play their part in making change or that they are directly affected by the pandemic and are really concerned about those inequalities you know them being directly affected by it and the inequalities becoming greater And in terms of organisations, it was really interesting. We had to allow them space and time. All of our work at StageSite has to be about creating a really open and honest relationship that's built on trust. So for us to go knocking on the organisation's doors or, you know, calling them up or sending them emails at the top of the pandemic when they were in mayhem would have been really insensitive. And I, I know that's not a a popular thing to say and but any sense of change has to be done in the right manner and at the right time with the right approach so interestingly it's it's now that our organization members are either coming back to us asking for help to go further um or i think over the course of perhaps the last two months maybe three at a push new organizations would well organizations would join to become members so i would say first first sort of um the first period of the pandemic was all about the individuals, help the individuals. And now we're looking at how do we rebuild with the organisations. So really exciting stuff. Yeah. It seems to me that people at all levels in the industry now recognise the need for better representation in backstage roles. Um, and I think what you're saying is that as, as the industry started to recover and to plan for the future, um, are you seeing signs it will embrace in principles championed by stage sites and echoed by many other organisations as well, such as Freelancers Make Theatre Work and the ALD. Yeah, yeah. I think, Bruno, um, what I often find myself saying is that whether we like it or not, we've been forced to pause. How do we use this moment of forced pause to return to better? Um, At StageSite, we believe that this is the time where organisations can develop relationships with individual members Um, think about what they're doing currently, what they could do differently. When we go back, what do they want their workforce to look like or to, you know, be made up of? Um, So I think, yeah, I think this is really forcing us all to kind of have one eye on the future. As tricky as these days are, all of it has to be about keeping an eye on the future because we will, I'm not trying to put false positivity on it, we will one day return to work. What does that work look like what does that industry look like if you're in charge of it all (laughs) or say you had aladdin's lamp and three wishes what would you do what would you wish for to make the most effective change now i should have an answer for you because actually i've been asked this a lot of times over the last month i have a lot of thoughts about what could change 
I'm not trying to give you a cop-out answer, but I genuinely think we're all going to be, organisations are going to be um, really pushed for resource. I mean, if ever they thought they were pushed for resource prior to the pandemic, it's only going to become worse. It, mm. There's got to be a way where we we know about co-pros, we know about that, but there's got to be a wider way of working together, uh, working together in a much more collaborative ways. I, I'm not um, I'm not unaware that circuit organisations are businesses, but we've got to find a way of somehow working more collaboratively and helping each other, whether that's physically sharing resource or creating many more co-productions, um, dare I say it, sharing teams i mean i don't have all of the answers but i'm i absolutely know that there's the success in all of this lies in working together more closer than ever you know like i said a great part of stage site is around shared learning so what is it that one organization is doing really well in one part of the country that another organization would benefit from knowing um so shared learning in a wider sense and i think that that sort of generosity is going to help any organisation be the best it can be during a really difficult sort of period of trying to heal. Yeah, I think that's a fantastically optimistic view. And I think one that I share with you, looking at the various initiatives that have started um, recently, such as Free Arts to Make Theatre Work yeah. and um, Scene Change, and it is about groups of people who've normally been working as individuals, as freelancers, all coming together and working what shared um destination do we want to find what shared problems do we need to solve and and i do think it's going to be very hard going back into theater and finding financial resources but i think there's a lot of um common ground that's been covered and a lot of communication that's been started so i do feel optimistic um but having said all that um Surveys recently have shown that there's a disproportionate number of the people that stage site aims to help are going to be forced to leave the industry because of the pandemic. Yeah. And our government has recently described us as an industry as unviable and unskilled. Do you ever give up hope? I don't think I'm allowed to. Um... <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> um, I have to admit, I have had moments of feeling this incredible sense of um, responsibility you know, it, it's common knowledge that we lost all of our resources at the top of lockdown and yeah. uh, were effectively forced to, again, pause, but stop might be more accurate. And, you know, just through my own circumstances of just understanding what lockdown meant and losing my own lighting contracts and trying to make sense of what was going on and all of those complex things that we probably all went through in the fear of losing jobs. Does that mean you lose your career? Does that affects how you pay your mortgage would you lose your home all of those complex things and alongside that to lose the resources for stage site meant that for two weeks effectively we were closed and then I went back to my committee and I remember saying hang on I feel really guilty like I've got over the shock but I'm sat here with guilt um because if we don't speak up and we don't continue our work here who does and you know supported brilliantly by a committee who sort of rallied round and we found a way of rebuilding our systems and opening our doors again which took a little bit of work but really pleased that we did it I have bits of paper because I'm often asked to speak at events and I have bits of paper on my wall with these awful frightening statistics of percentage mm. of people that are 
um, most likely to leave the sector, as you said. Um, and the fact that it's come from, it's, you know, it's evidence-based. It's not, um, it's not a sort of, oh, let's try not to make this happen. It's genuine concern. Yeah. Um, but genuinely, like if I, if I lost hope, what, what would that mean? I can't, I don't think I'm allowed to, I've got to keep going and I've got to keep, um, doing, we've got to do the best we can do to make this change happen. We can't give up. That's the easy option. Oh, that's very good to hear. What, and you've been running the organization, um, since lockdown with a very small group of volunteers and your committee, it's an incredible amount of work. And I guess, in a way, all your work outside theatre you're describing at the early stage of your career must have set you up very well for this. So it's sort of amazing how things have come around. Mm. But the workload for you and your small team, keeping in touch with member organisation, um, managing future plans, social media, all that must be an, an enormous job. And yet um, you've done it incredibly well and um, you've become more and more visible i think and 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 strong as an organization and um, what's what's the next steps for stage site yeah well firstly thank you for saying that because that means a lot um we clearly that i think the sector does need stage site the fact that the memberships have increased suggests that we need to continue i think the key to stage site is delivering now with one eye on the future and for us of course if we need to continue with stage site it's been an incredibly rewarding six months, but equally, I don't think anyone would disagree with it being, you know, it's hard. It's really hard. Um, and if we need to make sure that we can sustain our work, we need to come up with a future model where we can um, have a lot more resource behind us if the sector needs us. And we think they do. What's really positive is there's some really exciting conversations underway about how we continue our work and who's part of that who's supporting that who's resourcing that so if I didn't have my eyes on that I think I would probably be drowning Um, but I I can see literally there's light at the end of the tunnel there's a model that's being discussed that's very possible and um, would be supported by brilliant people yeah that's very exciting Mm. We just wanted to say we were struck by the passion with which Tamika spoke about her apprenticeship this is Tamika Patterson who's also on member of stage site uh, and a lighting programmer and a lighting associate she spoke to us about her apprenticeship and how that led her into a a theatre career how can we create more opportunities like that um so I think again James it's going to be about partnering up um I had a really good conversation with an artistic director recently who wanted to partner up with their local university because um they want to bring more people into theatre and perhaps perhaps people want to know more about theatre but haven't gone to drama school so that might be a nice way in Mm. um certainly you know people are talking a lot more about the things that we never spoke about job share um mentoring you know I know Mm. we've had assistants and associates but actually what role could they play going forward um and I think all of us are going to have a huge kind of we're all going to have a responsibility towards helping those who have just started out in the in the sector. So whether that means that we bring people on board that normally we wouldn't, um, or people with just you know a few years of experience and just really bring them up to the, the level that we're working on, I think it's going to be mixed. But definitely we've got to do things differently. And I think what shifted for me, uh, even with my stage site hat on, is we well I certainly felt 
that organisations were best placed to make change happen. And I agree with that point today. However, Mm. the power of individuals and freelancers is immense. So actually the part that we can play in giving people a different way in, creating opportunities, I think I think could be down to us as well, coming up with ideas and approaching producers with suggestions um, of yeah how to do things differently. There's no doubt that being a freelance lighting designer is tough. Running stage site is a mammoth task. Mm. How do you manage the stress? How do you keep healthy? How do you cope with all the travel and the time away? Do you have any time <laughs> off, Prema? <laughs> I feel like a holiday, I think. Um, yeah, I suppose prior to the pandemic, I mean, look, the reality was, yeah, I spent my life on a train. Um, the, it, there's this really interesting thing about all of the sector support organisations and the work that goes on behind the scenes. And I'm not just talking about stage site. You know, we had news yesterday about Common um, having to sort of mm. stop working. And, the you know, I know, David, because a lot of our us we we speak on panels together you end up seeing each other there's kind of this camaraderie amongst what you all go through and juggling your day job in amongst an organization so yeah there was you know there's there's bits to the job that people don't know about the kind of finish tech and then get home and work on stage site 11 a.m to 2 a.m in the morning and then go to bed and go into tech you know that's that's a bit full-on a bit prior to to lockdown I found a respite in going to a yoga class taking time out for me you know I I guess like on a Sunday not having to just run errands just have a bit of me time um going for a massage small things like that really really help and of course you know I have to admit I'm very privileged because I'm I'm supported by an incredible network I've got great family great friends I've got people around me who um really care for me and that's that makes a huge difference. It makes it makes it all possible. It makes um, the difficult days easier where you can just pick up the phone and go, oh my God, it's a bit too much. And somebody's there reassuring you yeah. you're doing all right. It means the world. Yeah, mm, sure. Has, do you think that lockdown has taught us as a community anything about balance? I suppose work-life balance? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I'm not going to say I've got it right. <laughs> but um <laughs> For me, I think we're all aware of the wider society. Um, in terms of work-life balance, yeah. I mean, look, I've I've spoken a lot about using this moment of forced pause to return to better. I obviously talk a lot about returning to better in terms of diversity, but could returning to better mean that we don't do 12-hour days during a tech? Could it mean that we don't need to juggle so many jobs to make a living? Um, could it be a much more collaborative approach in terms of who makes up our teams? Uh, I know that people are doing some great work around caring responsibilities and parenting. How do we address that? So I think, yeah, I think there's mm. to be better in many ways. I've heard a lot of people say that it's an opportunity to appra- reappraise the way we work. But actually, I don't think I've actually sat down and made a list mm-hmm myself of all the things that I would like to change you know <laughs> for me to you know or, or or that could change what what is it exactly that we're talking about the 12 hour days for example yeah. I know that there are plenty of directors who would say no but that's the only way to do it I don't think it is <laughs> Bruno you you say you'd rather do the longer lighting session and get home that's partly because I live in the middle of nowhere in Cornwall so for me I'd rather go away for a week and try and get a whole week of work done really quickly than go away for two weeks and have every afternoon off so that that's obviously 
just for me personally, it's not necessarily the right thing for the entire industry. No, but making theatre is like going to war. That's my sort of analogy, because sometimes it really does feel like you're just pouring every available ounce of strength and time into the project and everything else sort of stops. There's no world outside the tech. Yeah. James, I think that's such a key point. You know, we we don't give enough thought about sustainability of our careers. So mm. quite often it feels like all or nothing. Um, and there's something about value. You know, how do we value ourselves and the people that are close to us that perhaps don't work in the industry? Um what our responsibility is. Yeah, there's loads of things. I think we all just need to put together like our own riders and just uh, throw it into the contracts. <laughs> I, mean, I think so too. Talking yeah. of riders, mm. <laughs> I think it's time for the quick fire round. <laughs> <laughs> nice segue, James. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, it's your turn to start, Bruno. <laughs> Bremer, what's your favourite stage in the process? Oh, tech. I mean, I know tech's stressful, but tech, yeah. Yeah, yeah. join the tech club. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> what is your favourite tool? My favourite tool? Can be anything. Yeah, it can be anything. Are you expecting be... me to say like an AJ or something? Because that's really not no. me. You can say a laptop, an AJ, a pencil, notebook. A highlighter. There we go. Ah, I see. You've got one. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of slightly anticipating the next question. The next question was going to be pen or pencil. <laughs> pen. And always someone else's pens. I'm renowned. For oh, really? My own equipment. Yeah, yeah, always. Yeah. Are you, are you the light designer who takes all the pens from the stage management's desk gradually during the, um, the rehearsal process? Always. Yeah. <laughs> I used to work with a director. I'm not going to, am I going to name him? Will he mind? I oh, know. I used to work with a director at York and... Uh, I, he used to empty my pencil case regularly and I would spend a lot of money on lovely, you know, uh, mechanical pencils. So sort of five or six quid a pop. <laughs> and I'd get to the end of the tech and my pencil case would be empty every time. And it, I just, just drive me nuts. Get your own bloody pencil. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> I digress. I can edit that bit out. That's fine. Uh, next question. Night Owl or Dawn Chorus? Oh, Night Owl, definitely. Pudding or cheese? Pudding. <laughs> Prema, could you describe, if you had a tech rider, what would be on it? Proper warm meals for dinner. You know, like a... Oh, oh yeah, that's a good one. Brilliant. Yeah, get that in the rider. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely get that in the rider. I think we can all share that one. Chris Schertz um, asked for a basket of puppies, which we think is slightly oh, less realistic. But gorgeous. <laughs> In all seriousness, I think that's a really good thing. I've just been working at the International Theatre in Amsterdam. During the tech, they provide a hot meal for everybody, yes. acting company, and it's and there's an, another only other place that I've ever encountered that it's for free. Is at Ipswich Woolsey. Ipswich Woolsey. When you're in the middle of a tech, they bring food and, and everyone sits in the foyer and eats together. It's fantastic. It, it is, makes such a difference. It is fantastic. There's lot, there's various places to do it, and it's always super successful. Ed Devlin does it at her studio, actually. They always have lunch together. Um, mm. The Donmar Warehouse, have, on oh, okay. Friday, um, they have someone come in and cook during rehearsals in the rehearsal room. They have a sort of kitchen, and they have someone bring food in. Just on a Friday, though. Friday, Friday lunch. So it's not, mm. it's not quite the same. But the concert touring industry... Um, always cater. There's always food available. And so when you're doing those sort of insane hours that you have to do on 
making those kind of shows, you know that at any point you can go out and someone will cook you some decent food mm. and there's always supplies. And it makes a big difference. Yeah. And quite often the conversations you have while sat on the table having the food that's that's ready waiting for you actually help the next whole part of the day go much more smoothly. Yeah. It's, um, Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Please can we all have hot food? Yeah. Just time to eat, right? Because I, I often yeah. I'm creeping back into the auditorium with my food and I haven't quite had a full lunch break or um, I got caught out one Christmas when I took my food into the dress rehearsal and sat there, watched the dress rehearsal, still trying to eat, but, you know, paused for a while because you've got to do that thing, haven't you? You've got to do your job. And um, end of Act One, there we go. There's a glitter drop happening right over my production desk, <laughs> all over in my lunch. And it was like full of school kids who turned up watching the dress rehearsal. Miss, miss, there's glitter in your lunch. That's so funny. You said you spend most of your life on a train yeah. um, or, or before the pandemic. Um, window seat or aisle? Oh, interesting. You see, on a train, I would say window. But ironically, in a theatre during previews, always aisle. Yeah, they don't let us keep the windows open in the theatre, do they? <laughs> don't on the train either. What are you on about? I was just sort of imagining sitting, being able to kind of glance at the sea every so often halfway through a show. Uh, nice. You were on one of those old-fashioned trains with a compartment and like one of those windows you can pull down. That's what we have in Cornwall. What do you mean old-fashioned? Ah, <laughs> that explains everything. <laughs> uh, it's Bruno's turn to go to the bar. What can he get you, Prima? Oh, a G&T, please. Of course, it's coming right up. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. It's been brilliant. Oh, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. What a brilliant way of spending an afternoon and just kind of forgetting about everything and getting time to chat to you guys. So thank you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's been very good to have you here. Thank you once again to Prema for giving up her time to talk to us. As ever, if you have any questions, comments or even ideas for future episodes, or if you are David Kinder, that inspirational A-level teacher, you can contact us, and by extension Prema, on Instagram or Twitter at MakingTheatreFM, or if you prefer, by email on MakingTheaterePodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a glowing review. Until next time, thanks for listening. And goodbye. Goodbye.